0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China produced in partnership with SUPCHINA. Subscribe to SubChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our site at subchina.com, including recorded stories, editorials, regular columns, a growing library of videos, and, of course, our podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region to China's ambitious efforts to eliminate poverty. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Gould coming to you from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. This week, I welcome back Adam Tooze, professor of history at Columbia University. Adam, as those of you who heard him last time, I guess it was last year, will recall, was trained as a Germanist and is really known for his chops as an economic historian. He's written a number of excellent books, including The Wages of Destruction on the Economy of the Third Reich, Crashed, which remains, for my money, the best book on the global financial crisis, and the Great Deluge, which looks at the First World War and the interwar period. Uh, but the uh, reason I've asked to Seneca today is that last month he published an excellent essay in The New Statesman, specifically about China. It was titled, Why There Is No Solution to Our Age of Crisis Without China, which may be a bit of a misleading title in that it actually has relatively little uh, that's focused on the need to work with China to address, you know, the usual litany of things that we, well, obviously need to work with China on global warming and deadly pandemics and nonproliferation and, you know, the overall health of the global economy. Instead, it's, well, it's it's a much more ambitious essay, and we will dissect it at some length in what follows. Adam Tooze, welcome back to Seneca.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, uh, when I wrote to you to ask you to do another turn on the show, you mentioned that you had approached the assignment that you'd gotten from your editor with a little bit of trepidation. You know, why not ask a a China specialist or an expert to write it? Let me say, first of all, that I'm glad that you did step up because I, for one, really value uh, the perspectives of intelligent people from outside of the China field because inside the field – um, you know, people can be very narrowly specialized and they often miss the forest for the trees and they get, you know, tangled up in these little sort of insider debates. They often also lack a comparative historical perspective, which is something that I want to talk about at some length. And they and they fail to engage often with, you know, the really big questions because, well, they're just too big. So what ultimately made you decide to tackle this this assignment and this write this essay?
1: Well, a sense of um a sense of obligation because they actually I agree with you. I mean, I think in the same way as I would welcome a China specialist giving us his or her take on the situation in Europe, for instance, I feel we kind of owe it to each other to to reach out and to make that effort of synthesis and synthetic understanding. That was very much the spirit in which I approached the History of China the first moment I did, which was writing about deluge the you know the book deluge and the aftermath of world war one or the, the the history of World War one itself I mean no one's ever going to mistake me for a China specialist, but on the other hand, it's clearly time for us all in our from our own particular vantage points to make that leap, and so that was really in the end what motivated me plus plus again and again and again, simply curiosity i mean one of the great advantages of Reading and writing and researching as a non-specialist is that you're, you know, you've not reached the point of diminishing returns. Right, right, so right. So the, the cognitive gains to new reading and new learning for me from doing that are, are much greater in some way than they are from revisiting the, you know, the troubled history of the European integration project or something like that. Not that I, I don't do that regularly. So those were the the reasons, and it's a, it's simply uh, and finally, I think, I you know, I do feel like so many other people concerned with the West's relationship with China, a sense of urgency in this moment. And the piece is not in any way apologetic, but it is an effort at understanding. It is an effort to try and represent the rise of the Chinese economy, not as, you know, something primarily that's menacing or that should concern us because it's a matter of overtaking, but to represent, as it were, the story of China's troubled and repeated efforts, iterative efforts, really, to achieve modernity, to achieve prosperity, and to put that also in the context of the violent history of the region. Absolutely. Um, and that that, that that ultimately, I think, you know, trying to to put across that version of events rather than the sort of simple story that goes from GDP to defense budgets to, you know, a challenge to American hegemony. Um, which is so prevalent at the moment. That was also a concern.
0: So it was actually in your researches for the deluge that you sort of encountered Versailles and the May Fourth Movement and uh, and really kind of you know the central piece of modern intellectual history. Uh, so that, that was a very good entree, uh, a really good entry point for for you into. As I said, this is a really ambitious essay. So, just for those of our listeners who haven't yet read it, um, and by the way, it isn't very long, so I suggest that you hit pause and you read it now. Uh, just Google Adam Two's New Statesman China and it will come up. Uh, for those of you who can't read it right now, let me just give a quick outline of, of what Adam w- has tried to do with the essay. Adam, you can correct me if I've gotten to get this wrong, but maybe we can do this because it'll be. More economical. So you set out first to give a sense, on the occasion of the Communist Party's one hundredth anniversary, of the scale of its accomplishments. You do this very quickly, and how its successes really challenged these long cherished Whiggish beliefs about the final triumph of liberalism. And then you frame up kind of right sizing exercise, I would describe it as, where you offer your own answer to what basically everyone is trying to figure out, which is, you know what are China's actual ambitions? And you hint that they lie somewhere between the kind of unthreatening quiescence of the hide-and-bide period, the 1990s and the early 2000s, and this full-blown sort of, you know, ideologically or even existentially threatening aggression that you just talked about of, you know, the hawk's fevered imaginations. Um, so far, so good, right? I mean, that's, yeah, that's absolutely. The setup. No, okay. I do
1: think that is a, that is an essential first move, right? I mean, Yeah. And also, I mean, just to position it against, say, America's own you know, extraordinary. I mean, I mean w- without making a normative judgment, ne- nevertheless, historically unprecedented claim. I think, right? yeah, to, absolutely. In the full light of day, strike at in in the mode of personal assassination, um, antagonist that it declares. You know, outside the law and fair game. If you think about, it. you know, senior figures in the military leadership of Iran are just struck dead on airport runways yeah. by by drone attack. China's not in that game. Yeah, we
0: will talk about that great paragraph where where you write what China is not, but let me let me move yeah. through the essay. Uh, so I'll, I'll go on in, in search of an answer to that right-sizing question you then I think turn very wisely to China's history to see what that can tell us and you dispense first with some in- historical analogies One, um, you know that's based on this idea of the, the Thucydides trap which is recently so popular uh, specifically you know the Willow mean german analogy and uh, you know you being a Germanist that makes a lot of sense we'll talk about that in a bit uh, and you invoke I thought it was fascinating this 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 figure who I'd only heard of in in connection with his work imperial and only then because, you know, it had been kind of influential on Lenin, uh, J.A. Hobson, who was a British uh, economist. And uh, that was fascinating, I thought. Um, I mean, first of all, where did you stumble on, on this quote uh, where, you know, he he really talked about how, you know, China was going to be a major determinant, if not the major determinant of the future of mankind. He said, whatever it does, whether it becomes a, a fragmented power, whether it's vanquished, whether it's absorbed or becomes, you know, a state standing on its own two feet, it's going to be the big determinant. Where did you come across Hobson and, and what what other gems of wisdom may be hidden in there about China?
1: Well, I mean, Hobs- Hobson is, is well known as the inspirer of Lenin. Right. Um, Lenin's quite frank about it. Right. And Hobson is also an immediate precursor to Keynes, both uh-huh. in his economics and in his internationalism. And so he is, you know, the key representative before Keynes of, you know, the political intellectual tradition which i personally feel attached to which is left liberalism of the british variety you know you can hear from my accent that's where i'm i'm born and so he he's thinking through that the fundamental dilemmas really of the late 19th century and he's he's crucial and he opens the door to lenin because he blows open any kind of liberal panglossian kind of optimism about everything being right in the world and says so, well no the consequences of economic growth are precisely the sorts of everything you, you're familiar with from Lenin right. is actually already in Hobson, uh, including the economics and the analysis of capital flows. And 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 Hobson is thinking about two great, as it were, cauldrons of conflict in the at the moment of the turn of the century. And one of them is coming from a British point of view, South Africa and the Boer War, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which he sees as an absolutely classic, you know, cauldron of imperialist antagonism. And if you have to understand, for somebody like him, Empire is, broadly speaking, thought of in normatively positive terms. Right. Empire is a source of universal order. It's a form of legal structure that can encompass you know, broad spans of territory around the world. And when he's writing about imperialism, he thinks of imperialism as the antithesis of empire, because imperialism is land-grabbing, aggressive, destabilizing, rivalrous, competitive disorderly and leads to to war and he, what he's diagnosed and what he's trying to shake the British elite awake over is the fact that their Victorian hegemony, their mid-19th century, 1850s, 1860s, opium warps, period of unrivaled dominance where coming off the Napoleonic Wars the British bestrode the world is under threat and it's under threat from all sides, the Italians, the Germans, the Japanese, the Russians, the Americans and it's that situation that we have to understand. So it's a theory of... Crisis of globalization of the first generation and on one part of that is South Africa where you have the Germans dabbling and the other is China right and he's writing in the immediate context of the of the boxer uprising and and it's not by accident that China becomes the laboratory for thinking not as it were particular types of aggression they're obviously the Chinese for instance single out the Japanese as their their obvious natural antagonist at certain moments. But as it were, imperialism in general, because in China around the Boxer Rebellion, you do see this extraordinary convergence of all of the imperialist powers in a, you know, in a strike.
0: And also an absolute uncertainty of outcome. I mean, it could have gone any of these paths. It could have been fragmented. It could have been vanquished. It could
1: It could have... Or, as it were, and what Hobson sees heaving into view on the horizon is the possibility that it could actually be consolidated around a national core. Mm-hmm. In, and if it does that, just looking at the bulk of it, it's evident that it changes the game Then it changes the game at the global level because it will then be the mightiest state structure the world has ever seen. And so he... He maps this out. So it goes from a very general analysis of the problems of liberalism. People like um, you know, Michael Pettis and, and Matt Klein have taken up to under, underpin their thinking about the imbalances of the global economy 100 years later, to a rather particular analysis of the, of the central role of, of China. And this, for me, thinking about China is always the problem, right? Does it subsume under broad, you know, what we think of as broader categories? Or, you know, does that basically misunderstand the geography of the world? Because we're used in the West to generalizing from lots of small country cases. Right. And what do you do when you all of a sudden have this thing, which is one sixth of humanity, in and of itself, progressing, developing, doing whatever it does? Right. And, and Hobson, for me, is one of the first thinkers in the West in the modern period who really tangled squarely with that. And his conclusion was unambiguous. The whole game will be decided there fundamentally.
0: Right. So then in the piece, you do something that I thought was really bold and, you know, for my money, deftly executed. Uh, It was a potted history of China from the first opium war to Xi Jinping's ascent. And I have to say it was really, it was surprisingly well done. I mean, you being you, of course, you linger longer in, in more detail on some economic turning points, you know, the economic history, but, uh, you know, you didn't leave out anything that was too important. And uh, you remind us, as, as I've often reminded people on this program, that the turning point, I mean, when you get, you know, later on in the history, I mean, we can go back into some of this history, uh, but the turning point in the US-China relationship predated Trump, it predated even Xi Xi. And uh, if you had to fix a date on it, the year 2009 would be a good choice. And I completely concur. I mean, I have been arguing that for a very long time on this program. Uh, you remind us of what China also is not. And um, like I said, we will talk about this. And these, I think these few sentences really pack quite a a, a big punch, I thought. And, and uh, again, we will talk about this. Then just as importantly, you list the various things that Beijing has done or that still does do uh, that are very much rankle. These things, as you know, are though what a large assertive nation state does, and that 's another pin i want to you know drop in there and let's let's, let's talk about an or a nation state um, you remind us you know for its sheer size, the ambition of its ruling party uh, that China is not an ordinary nation state um, then you raise what is, I think, maybe the most intriguing question about China's rise, and it's one that re- rarely gets asked candidly. Well, it's 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 never really posed or satisfactorily answered, at least by American politicians. And you quote Larry Summers here, and you you who, who asked in 2018. Can the U.S. imagine a viable global economic system in which the U.S. is no longer the dominant player? Could an American political leader acknowledge that reality in a way that permits negotiation over what such a world would look like? To which the answer right now, I mean, it comes from Joe Biden, uh, is not on my watch. Uh, so then just to wrap up our little summary. So then finally, to to drive home what's at stake, you raise an issue that you talked about in some of your earlier writings, you know, the centrality of China to addressing global warming. And finally, there's this, I guess, you know, in your own, it's your own words, but it's a kind of recapitulation of this Larry Summers theme, and it's in the penultimate paragraph. And this is what really did it for me. This was the money quote. Uh, you wrote, it is not clear that American politics can digest plurality other than from a position of dominance, before going on to hint that no, American politics cannot digest plurality from a position of parity or, or uh, non-dominance. So with that outline done, um, there are just all sorts of questions I've got for you, but let's start with this. Historical analogies, right? Uh, it's handy that you being a Germanist, you know, and since the, the g- analogies that get trotted out most frequently are, you know, the German analogies. You, you gave an interview to a Chinese newspaper called, um, well, the paper, Peng in which you were asked about historical analogies and specifically about this oft-cited, you know, Thucydides trap example of the Anglo-German relationship in the run-up to the Great War, you know, after basically between, you know, Bismarck's Germany after the Franco-Prussian War, um, and you were b- dismissive of that, as you were in, in, in the same New Statesman piece, although you know, just very quickly you d- dismissed it out of hand. What do we get wrong when we lean on these historical analogies? What does it mislead or, or what, what does it obscure?
1: Well, you get First World War wrong, first of all. You, you get 1914 wrong. Um, the thucydides trap logic may not be a bad way of thinking about world war one but it is not the anglo-german antagonism that drives it the one that that really does matter is the german-russian antagonism Mm. um so that's you know that's the sort of historian in me it's like you know we might as well be talking the right the right thing but russia is the swing variable because the war is it's a ground war it's a it's a land war right and 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 what drives the german soldiers is the concern about the franco-russian so so um, kennan was right that the franco-german george kennan you know the great analyst of american foreign policy of a distinctly you know he had a problematic relationship with russia shall we say but his understanding that the relationship between republican france and tsarist russia was the sort of you know, the worm in the apple of pre-1914 international relations, I think is broadly speaking correct. It messes everything up, right? Because you've got a French Republic aligned with an autocratic Tsarism, which is very unstable, but also very dynamic economically. And that does everyone's heads. Like, progressive Germans don't know which way to align, because should you take a defeatist position, surrender, but then you end up surrendering to the Tsar, you know. Anyway, so that is, the A, that's the first problem. Right. The Anglo-German antagonism, in and of its own right, was probably capable of being mediated. And the Anglo-American antagonism, after all, which does take place at the level of the global arena, the naval arena, is mediated. You know, because the Thucydides trap only takes you so far. But, you know, people like Lenin and Trotsky were convinced that, and Hitler as well, that the United States and Britain would inevitably end up at odds on Thucydides trap logic. In other words, how could the British you know, imperial elite not fight the United States for supremacy? And the answer is because they're not crazy. Right. They Because they could see the problem coming, because they could see the advantages of buddying up to the United States, which through to the late 1960s, I was just talking about this with somebody else, until the late 1960s, Britain is the hegemonic military power in the Middle East, not the United States, and it's being held there by the Americans. So through to 67, right? Right. Right. Um, So that was the bargain, and it worked very well for the British elite, right? And after World War I, they were clear. They could not afford an antagonism or even the prospect of that. So that's another reason why the Thucydides trap, you misspecify 1914. The one that really does matter is the one between the British and the Americans. That's resolved peacefully. But the third objection for me is simply... Again, it's like, does China fit into categories designed for smaller, historically in some ways, in world historic terms, less significant antagonisms? I mean, let's remind ourselves, this is, you know, it comes out of Sparta and Athens, two microscopic little European <laughs> city states, right. you know, over 2,000 years ago. And we generalize out to the British Empire, admittedly a giant world historic force. The Kaiser Reich, not, right? It's a it's a local, regional reconfiguration of the european power balance and all of a sudden we're now using that to read a 21st century encounter between an american global superpower which is historically unprecedented in its reach and its might and china one sixth of humanity mobilized in a way that no group of humanity has ever been mobilized before in economic terms we've literally never ever in the record of you know of human experience had anything like the ascent of china over the last 30 40 years so 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 I just think, you know, I would not want to wager any significant money on this as a way of thinking about this. Plus, of course, we know it's internalized. I mean, Xi Jinping himself has referred to this model and said how dangerous it is. So we've also got like years, decades, hundreds of years, in fact, of reflection on this as a way of of analyzing the world. So for all of those reasons, it's it's present. At this point, there's no point in denying it. You can't wish it out of the world. Um, But I wouldn't, as it were, want to anchor an understanding on that as a hardwired determinative logic.
0: So the fourth century BC Peloponnese maybe isn't our our most instructive example. Well I mean only (laughs) a
1: a classical education of a western civ variety might make that compelling to you if you are continuously in the game of projecting yourself back to the Peloponnese, but I mean, I I didn't have the benefit of that kind of education. Maybe that's one reason why it's <laughs> just not compelling to me. I'm sorry, I'm too, too much of a barbarian to uh, like to even be able to get in get my head in that place.
0: I do like reading my my landmark Thucydides and my landmark Herodotus. Those are those are great great volumes to own. But anyway, uh, there's another maybe even more freighted analogy that gets trotted out as well. Um, And, you know, the other German analogy, you've heard it before, you know, before the Beijing Summer Games in 2008, this is Berlin, 1936, Uh, even more now with, you know, even more explicit references and, and, and more and more people making the suggestion that China today is an example of... A mature fascist state. Now, I studied with a James Gregor at UC Berkeley, so I think I know. Yeah, I know from fascism enough to say this. This ain't it. Uh, but what do you say to people who insist on the applicability of the label to the modern PRC that it's fascist?
1: Yeah, and I do get asked that because I have this background. Doesn't it? I mean I, I get quite cross to be honest. I mean I think it's pejorative. I mean it's yeah. it's it's just flat out pejorative. And uh, yeah, so I mean, I, that's my first reaction. I mean, it, it's 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 a it's a it's a misunderstanding of of the nature of this problem. I mean, and and it's a, it has a long lineage that kind of pejorative liberal argument. And it and you know, much as I would self-identify as as a left liberal, it, you know, it's important to recognise the weakness of one's own tradition, if you like, and the politics often associated with it. And one of its, as it were, stupider sides is that it? Is that it flattens its antagonists, right? right? So right. when liberals come up against something they recognise as illiberal, they're terribly tempted to say, oh, well, you know, therefore it's totalitarian or fascist. And this is, to my mind, a profoundly unhelpful way of engaging with a much more complex reality and a reality which is massively path-dependent. I know you have very strong views about the nature of the ideological project which the Communist Party in China is still engaged in. And this is in no way to exculpate, right? Again, another one of these sort of liberal weaknesses is to say, well, if you're saying that, you must be downplaying the murderousness. Don't you understand that tens of millions of people were killed? And, of course, the answer is no. Death is not the same as politicised. It's not the same as politicised. They are all, in their own ways, of course, you know, horrific and and being a privileged citizen of the West never having been on the receiving end of that I speak about all of these experiences with due modesty because who are we to sit here and pontificate about the kind of violence that sure. a regime like right. that can and dish out and does dish out but um, it is it is clearly not the same in, in so many different ways I mean there's no equivalent in the history of the Chinese Communist Party's history to the Holocaust. Nor is there any equivalent to, you know, Operation Barbarossa within which Holocaust, the Holocaust was, was fully nested after 1941. Mm-hmm. This, is an, this is, a, is an absurd comparison. Right. Um, so I think it, it derives from either a polemical intent, of which there's plenty around right now, or it derives from a really kind of flaccid and, and um, flat kind of liberal demonization of, of illiberal enemies. And, and is this simplifying and unhelpful schematics.
0: Let's talk a little bit about your potted history of China. First, I'm really curious. When you set out to write this, what did you turn to? What what books, what resources did you consult? I mean, who did you run your draft account by? I am mean, I'm, I'm curious about why, you know, what sources you would have regarded as sufficiently authoritative since you know some of the stuff is still pretty hotly contested. What was your process? Oh,
1: this 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 might not be a bit that we what <laughs> you may want to cut this out. Um <laughs> I mean the way I constructed it right is that it's organized around a series of of ideas so it's organized around a series of you know the, the the idea being that the process of chinese economic modernization is iterative and it involves a series of bounds a series of efforts part of the argument of the piece is after all that One of the misleading features of the invocation of the Thucydides trap at this moment is the idea that it's new, right? That that this is something we've suddenly run into, whereas I think a more balanced account of China's national political history, and I understand that's a problematic term when applied to China because you could think of it as empire or civilizational. But in any case, let's just say that part of the project here is the making of China as... A nation state. This has run up against repeated obstacles. If we were in a Thucydides trap situation, in other words, this would not be the first time. Right, and that is in fact absolutely internal to the self-understanding of well, the the the, the communist party regime in the current moment is that it is the. The the heir to a, tradi- a a history of contested, violently contested struggles, and some of those are external. Right, starting with the Boxer Rebellion in the late nineteenth century, um, going through you know the humiliating interactions with Japan during World War One, culminating in May Fourth. Um, but then even more dramatically in the 1930s. Because I do read, and this is as it were based on you know various people's analyses of cha- Japanese elite thinking, I do read this basic driver of Japanese aggression towards China in the 20s and 30s, above all in the 30s, as being the effort to anticipate and forestall the consolidation of a potent national republican regime on the mainland of China, which would fundamentally, as it has done in due course, alter japan's position in the world yeah, yeah and then of course the other source of tension are internal to china so divisions within china classically of course in the so-called warlord period but then also within the period of of maoism with this you know really unique in the history of global developmentalism violent antagonism between projects of state building which are instantly recognizable to anyone who knows the history of the soviet union on the one hand And the Maoist project of bottom up, you know, bombarding the headquarters, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this sort of insurgent notion of, of revolutionary politics, which is, you know, which is which is the bit which is, I think, from a Western historian's point of view, hardest to understand in its potency, right, continuing potency through to the 1970s. Um, and so that's what the piece tries to lay out as the backdrop to the much more, I think, for a contemporary audiences, more familiar story of, you know, reform since the late 70s and the drive on from there.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you do an excellent job of making that relevant. I mean, and, and making the case for why it's important to understand uh, both this external and these, these these you know internal forces. So, I mean, China's history is often said to be daunting uh, and, and certainly all the more so for someone, you know, without... A steeping in the language and in the culture and whatnot. But I've often said, and I remember when a really good friend of mine and I were talking about exactly this this question one night over beers in Beijing, is that, you know, all you really need to know to develop a a basic appreciation for how that history has shaped the worldviews of Chinese people alive today, you can learn it in an afternoon. Less actually, I mean, I, you just kind of provided in, in in a nutshell right there. The broad contours of that history are just not all that complex. And while historians would certainly balk at, at the kind of squashed down, oversimplified narrative that I'm talking about, it is the version that Chinese people have, have learned and internalized for many decades now. And you know, and for that reason alone, it's really you know important to know how they 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 think about their own history. Apart from maybe you know the CCP's starring role in, in in the eventual victory over Japan, the rest is you know close enough to factual that it it goes largely unchallenged, right? You you if you, you know so you were able to give like I said just now a pretty decent overview, and you certainly did so in, in in the essay, and that suggests to me that you don't think your intended audience maybe yet has a grasp of of the, the basics of Chinese history, on how. Uh, understanding the the country's history has shaped its values, its priorities, its behaviors, its institutions. Uh, so, what did compel you to include a, a relatively detailed overview that takes two thirds of your of your essay? What was the, the the reason why you decided I need to educate this this readership on the outlines of Chinese history?
1: Because I think I think it is crucial that we have this. This out this this outline in our heads, right? That the we should understand it, and I don't take the elements to be entirely unproblematic. And and as it were, emphasizing the bits that I do in the way that I do is intended to make in each case, you know, a point. I mean, not a polemical point, but certainly to make to make a point. So you know, the sort of move to rehabilitate the warlords as actors in a story of national modernization is is important, I think, to impart to a Western audience who just generally has a sort of Tintin conception of, right. you know, of, of, uh, of that period of, of Chinese history, or sort of J.G. Ballard, filtered through those. You know, It's a sort of exotic view of Shanghai, and then the Japanese come in from the outside. So putting that element in the picture, um, I also think, for me, conveying to a, a Western audience the way in which economic growth per se is a relatively, as it were, novel idea as a consolidating, you know, that the, the focus under Deng on the development of the forces of production per se as a project, under which one can read in Marxist terms after all. I mean it takes you back to the Menshevik kind of position, that or a Stalinist position, depending on which way you want to read it. That is something that has, as it were, to be inserted into the DNA of government in China in mm-hmm. the late 1970s, rehabilitated. That's an idea I think which which again takes people by surprise because they're not you know, they think of Maoism as sort of the mad project of, you know, of this extraordinary individual, they think of it as murderous, they think of, you know, lots of young people running around in blue suits and waving little red books. But then I don't think there isn't really a kind of deep appreciation of the radical intent of that politics. I mean, once upon a time, of course, large numbers of Europeans in particular were infatuated with it, but yeah. it's largely absent from the the conversation in the present day, you know, it's remembered perhaps obliquely by way of ghastly, you know, the Pol Pot regime in Cambodia, which of course is not what's going on in China, right. but related to it. And and so I think that those making those sorts of elemental moves is absolutely a worthwhile essay. Well, I hope it is anyway. <laughs> you know, as an author, you 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 know you you put your bottle out on the to the sea and see whether <laughs> it lands anywhere. And this does seem to have resonated with people because it's, it's, you know, it's in the manner of this kind of sketching of history. The, the selectivity is radical, but sometimes as a result of that, you end up with a, you know, a rather bold caricature. And I think in policymaking terms as well, that having the right kind of bold caricature in your head... It's crucial. I'm a big believer in, you know, what Nicky Kaldor, the the veteran Keynesian economist, called stylized facts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ideas, nuggets to think with and to, you know, position on your... On your intellectual
0: chessboard, the mission statement of chart book. Wow.
1: <laughs> in many ways it might have
0: been We'll talk about that. So, indulge me in a little rant here. I just want your reaction to it. No specific question, but I, I find that even if you teach someone, even in some depth, the history of a country—it doesn't have to be China. It can be, you really, know, any other country. That in itself just is never enough. Back in my days, and I was an aspiring academic, and I was teaching undergrads in, in the 1990s. I found that their 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 knowledge of Western history. Was just appallingly shallow, and even if they could tick off, you know, the names and dates and the battles and the treaties and what, what have mm-hmm. you, they hadn't really thought about European or American history enough. So often, you know, even I was I was trying to teach Chinese history, I found them their thinking to be just so shot through with, you know, teleology, just no appreciation whatsoever for the contingency that's so inherent in history. And mm-hmm. as I, I've doubtless, you know, said this before on the on the show and in different contexts, but you know, I think many of us. In, and this is especially true after the collapse of Soviet communism. You know, in this kind of moment of triumphalism, in this, mm-hmm. um, this kind of moment of grand amnesia, historical amnesia, where we just kind of checked out, and we we find ourselves standing on this side of this yawning historical chasm, and we look across and we see Russia and Iran and China and India, you know, and and the nations of the Arab world, and we say, come on over, you know, be like us, right? Just cross the chasm, it's super easy. Or if you're Neil Ferguson, you might just say, you know, just download these killer apps of Western Mm -hmm. civilization, and, and you can be just like us. But, you know, of course, we don't bother to look down into that chasm and see all the bodies strewn along the path path that took us here uh the skin of the teeth escapes and those lucky rolls of the dice that got us here uh we act as if it were you know preordained or easy when it's absolutely neither and so you know all these tensions that had to either resolve one way or another or not be resolved as the case may be you know that 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 allowed us to develop concepts like you know rule of law or separation of powers or this belief in the sovereign primacy of the individual um so you know, this, this blindness, uh, this, this amnesia is just incredibly frustrating. I feel like people who do, though, understand the contingency that's inherent in history and who do have an appreciation for the massive gravitational force of history and for the historical privilege that makes our careless ahistoricism even possible. Uh, mm-hmm. these people just, they, they have a different approach when it comes to a, a non-Western country like China. I mean, and, you know, it's, it's like, so, Part of what's so daunting to me is not getting them to understand the contours of China's century of humiliation, but to understand something about their own privilege and, and, you know, to to cure them of the the Whiggish teleological bullshit.
1: Um, I mean, it may help in that case that I, you know, I grew up between England, which was at the time, or Britain at the time, a declining, you know, an empire, an ex-empire in a state of crisis. I mean, that was very shaped by the experience of Britain in the 1970s. And on the other hand, um, West Germany, which at the time was still the front line in the Cold War, uh, uh, one fragment, one element of uh, a formerly unified country that, when I got there, was only you know 30 years away from the end of World War II, less than 30 years away from the end of World War II. And the, the scars literally on the bodies of the older folk when you enter the swimming pools, of which Germany has many in the summer, were literally just in front of your eyes. You you know, people's old dudes in speedos with huge chunks of their bodies missing from shrapnel and machine gun bursts. And so I think that, you know, and then, you know, in in my lifetime, I've sort of, as everyone else, but I mean, I think I've just been extremely conscious of the way in which those envelopes, as it were, of what at the time appeared to be a frozen and stable world of continuously shifted German unification, Brexit most recently... I think we might very well witness the disintegration of the United Kingdom over the next ten to twenty years. Mm. In de facto, we already are. So, that sense for me is very you know deeply intuitive, and I think working my way through German history as I started by doing professionally and thinking very hard about the way in which they too have had to, as it were, you know not so much as it were shape a narrative of the centuries of humiliation, but the sort of century of aggression and disaster. And understanding what that meant, the the contingency also of the idea of, of, of the nation in the German case, which has come into its own even in my own lifetime. And when I go back and visit now, my, my friends of my age, I'm in my 50s, they'll say to me, you know, Adam, we don't talk about the Federal Republic anymore. It's all Germany. right? But growing up in West Germany, as I did in the 70s and 80s, no one certainly of a liberal disposition spoke of Germany. You spoke of the Bundesrepublik, the Federal Republic, which mm-hmm. is what, you know, the state that you were proud to... To be part of, so even you know, in these subtle ways, even in the course of my lifetime, in a, in a zone, as you're saying, of immense privilege and stability. Basically, you, you, if you have your ear to the ground and you're attuned to it, you can, you can feel these, this shifting terrain.
0: You know, it's so frustrating here. I can Im- not imagine an educated or reasonably, you know, liberal white American today saying to a Black Lives Matter activist or to somebody pushing for reparations. Hey, slavery ended 150 years ago. Get over it. Or that same person saying, you know, mm-hmm. the memory of slavery is being kept alive through Democratic Party propaganda and the public school system that, you know, that party dominates through, you know, critical race theory. Or, or that, you know, black Americans, you're, you're indulging a narrative of victimization. Uh, I mean, you don't need to accept that China's historical experiences are directly comparable to the trauma of enslaved Americans to understand that history matters and that whether you're German and you have, you know, the whole trauma of the second world of, the, of both wars in the interwar period, history really matters and, and it, it lives beyond just beyond lifetimes. Uh, granted, I think Americans today learn much more about the experience of their black compatriots than, than they do say about China, but they learn, or at least my, my kids, you know, going to public schools in, in the American South, they they learn about the lasting legacy of white supremacy in our institutions, in the property market, in education, in the job market. But is it such a leap to be able to extend that same kind of appreciation for historical experiences to a country like China or to Iran or or to Russia, especially, you know, given that, like like I think we've argued and we both agree, the, the broad contours aren't that difficult to grasp.
1: Mm. Well, I don't think... I I mean, it is clearly not too much to demand intellectually, but I think the problem presumably is... Is politics was there. I mean, there is a substantial body of opinion in the United States, which would w- which would absolutely take the position that you and I, I think would both think was obnoxious. Right, but they, what you know, I'm, I'm you know, complaining what about is this.
0: that no, I don't expect them to be able to, to, you know, grasp China's experience, but I do expect them the you know, the people on our side, the, the left liberals.
1: But, but I think I think generalizing it, it, it is difficult. We, we, we do have to reckon with, I would have thought, the continued force of, you know, communist history. I mean, this isn't any old regime advocating this that's, or adopting this position. I mean, America has a chequered history of dealing with post-colonial or anti-colonial nationalisms, including with Chinese. I mean, the Americans did not exactly rally around Sun yat senators flag, did they? Yeah. Um, they, they were slow to move to the position of backing um, Chiang Kai-shek. The, the British as imperialists were much quicker to move to a recognition of the necessity of doing a deal with the Chinese. They had much more at stake as well. I mean, the... Again, you know, America's position in China in the 20s is largely a matter of fantasy compared to the sorts of investments the the British, the French, the Japanese have along the coast. So I do think, actually, America has, you know, oscillates between a sort of romantic uh, affection for certain sorts of national republicanism around the world, including the Chinese project at various moments, but then a deep down difficulty in dealing with communism as a project and and its authoritarian sides and its unapologetic attachment to at least the, the ideological lineage of the communist project back to the Russian revolution and before. And there's an odd kind of way in which a certain sort of American conservative of the Kissinger variety, you know, who thinks of themselves as steeped in history and so on, can can sort of almost deal with this more easily than um, American liberals can, yeah, who very yeah. quickly go to universal values and insist on their relevance. And you know, and that is their creed, and they stand by it. And, I, and I'm as attached to it as any other liberal. But it's difficult then to assimilate historical difference, particularity, differentiation within that frame. And that's a, that's a notorious problem of this. Yeah, of you're caught on the horns form. of,
0: I mean, I think intellectually, most of us at one level... Our, our we are cultural relativists we understand that you know historical forces shape the, the at least in a given time the possible you know choices that- and this is a
1: potent relativism this goes back to this issue of whether americans of any stripe can live with plurality except under the that's right. dominance, right because this isn't this isn't just the sort of pluralism for which you make space and out of the goodness of your hearts recognize. because and the same is true in the united states i the black lives matter movement is of course fostered by a certain sort of american liberalism at this point but but black people remain a small minority relatively speaking within the united states mm-hmm. and a disempowered one yeah. and it's quite different to deal with an absolute giant that dwarfs you that looks as though in the foreseeable future it will be more potent in fact in certain dimensions it was already vastly more potent than you are and with regard to certain problems like climate is the problem and you are suddenly discover yourself as as it were an accessory to a problem which you no longer govern, and that—that's a—that's a even deeper challenge.
0: Last year, I wrote an essay after you know the summer of Black Lives Matter and Trump's sort of ratcheting up of of the heat on China, and finding you know parallels between these things. In I I, I, I sort of saw the white American, especially male, response to Black Lives Matter as having a lot in common with what. The American sort of national response to China was. Uh, I'll send Absolutely. you that essay. It's, yeah. it, it was a lot yeah. of fun.
1: I, in my in my forthcoming book, Shutdown, which is out in September, I make exactly that argument. I, mean, oh, I, think uh, after, you know, I can't
0: wait to read it. That'll be great. So,
1: um, because we do, because after all, the you know, just as a historian, you have to ask yourself, like, why. Um, The antagonism between China and the United States in its modern form, of course, doesn't start with Trump. We we agree, you and I, I think that it goes back to 2009. Or earlier. So the question Mm -hmm. really is, why does it explode in 2020? And part of the trigger is the pandemic as such. Part of the trigger is the escalating pressure that China is applying on its side, notably Hong Kong is, I think, the thing which shifts in 2020. But then the question is, why is that taken up by the American side at that moment, and I completely agree that the escalating tension of the American culture war, and if it gets wrapped up with China, if you read people like Barr, like, you know, Attorney General Barr at the time, it's, it's astonishing the extent to which we're in a kind of McCarthyite double front, right, internal and external enemies with the two being quite confused, woke Hollywood supporting both Black Lives Matter and, you know, kowtowing to the Communist Party, that's, a, I think, a fusion that happens within a structural configuration, which, which makes a, com- a struggle between the United States and China more and more likely. The fact that it happens at that particular moment, I think, has uh, really does involve that kind of fusion of different uh, strands of anxiety and tension.
0: I, I can't wait to read your book. So, you know, your paragraph, I mean, you, you mentioned that, that China today is not exporting revolution. It's it's not, while, while there's still a fear of communism, we, we should we should be clear that and you write this. You say it's not the China of the past. It's not sponsoring Maoist revolutions. It's not Saudi Arabia. You, you say you know with its sponsorship of Wahhabism and its de- destabilizing uh, support for for all sorts of, of radical strains. It's not Russia and its little green men in, in Ukraine. And and I think most interestingly, you <laughs> write. It's not the U.S. I mean, you you wrote. And I'm going to quote you here. Nor is it a military hyperpower that dispatches drones to kill its enemies around the world. You mentioned um, the the killing by the Baghdad air, airfield. Uh, it was two years ago. Uh, it, it, or engages in wars of choice and destabilizes fragile states in pursuit of responsibility to protect operations. I imagine you must have caught a little bit of flack for that last bit. You know, um, some people might have called you whataboutist or or uh, both sidesism no actually I'm not,
1: not, i mean i i mean it has the merit of simply being a statement of fact yeah I mean, like, you know you, you can i mean it, it really is simply and it's i think surprising how shocking it is to us when you just make that statement of fact right right and and i think it's it you know we' without without wanting to sort of you know go down the rabbit hole of a critique of American power in the last 20 to 30 years it we should recognize how extraordinary it's been and we are witnessing after all in Afghanistan now in these weeks as it were the pathetic kind of full stop on, yeah. on one part of that project but also as a historian i thought for me it was very important to remind folks this isn't the first time that the world has encountered Chinese power, right? I was, I had the privilege of being in Tanzania at the beginning of 2020, and it's. If you go to the National Museum in Dar or somewhere like that, you see all these monuments the Tanzanian Chinese Corporation in the 1960s building mm-hmm. tunnels. Mm-hmm. If, if you look at the data for Chinese capital export that uh, Carmen Reinhart and others put together. What's really interesting is that before the big bulge of One Belt One Road, there's actually a previous bulge of Chinese foreign investment in the 1960s. sure, which was tiny in absolute terms, but relative to Chinese GDP was already quite significant. So there as it were, it's worth reminding ourselves in the current moment that in a sense, the challenge China poses now is far more conventional than the challenge that China posed. In the sixties when it was a you know, a full on revolutionary force. Right. The- it had
0: no buy-in whatsoever to the to the system. In fact it, it Absolutely was not. It, right,
1: you right. Know, talk about Black Lives Matter, I mean it was bought in on a rhetoric of racially coded confrontation with Western power. Um, Absolutely. My, my old buddy at, um, at Yale, Jeremy Friedman, who's now at Harvard, has a has a has a powerful new book coming out about precisely this.
0: So I mentioned that you view much of what China does as, you know, par for the course for a large and powerful nation state. But does this concept of a nation state really fit for what China is today? I mean, obviously, China wasn't present at Westphalia. I mean, you've, you've heard maybe that this famous you know in, in my field anyway a very very well-known political scientist named Lucien Xin and he once said of China that China is a civilization masquerading as a nation state now and to be sure I mean China insists up and down that it is now absolutely a nation state but you know it's it's hard to ignore certain aspects of Chinese behavior that don't quite conform to these ideas I mean the way for example that the party is never quite comfortable with the idea that emigrate Chinese overseas Chinese whatever their citizenship, are still somehow theirs. Uh, they, they they are treated differently. I know this firsthand. I mean, you know, as somebody who, even though I was born in the United States, you know, I am absolutely treated differently and I'm regarded as being civilizationally Chinese, irrespective of, you know, what my native language is. Uh, whether, you know, it's sometimes under the sort of benign protection and sometimes it's under the less benign, you know, jurisdiction, but they, they want to impose this. So is is China not like any other nation state, uh, just because it's bigger as maybe your piece su- suggests possibly or do you think there's anything to this civilization stuff i mean without getting all samuel huntington
1: <laughs> oh i was thinking i mean i've been thinking about this i mean again it might it may um it may have something to do with my background as a germanist because you know who else wasn't at this failure was the germans you know,
0: this well, it wasn't to Germany, forestry.
1: right? Well, you no, know, it was about Germany. It was made on the body of Germany. Yeah, there was the palatinate, and
0: there was you know. S- but there's no the, the,
1: there's so. no Germany present, right? right? Because the German solution is the Holy Roman Empire of German nations. Right. And um, and this is in no way to quibble with obviously the the claims for the depths and the sophistication of Chinese culture as a, as a realm. But I don't think the incongruence between nation state form and cultural sphere is unique to China. It may be hmm. particularly grandiose in the Chinese case, which would be unsurprising, but it's not. It's by no means unique. I mean, the same thing is often said about my country of birth. Like, you know, are the English really a nation or are they basically just imperialists? Right? And in <laughs> which case, what are they now since they don't have an empire and they may lose the United Kingdom? And there isn't really anyone who regards themselves as British. In fact, it's often said that the only people who regard themselves as British are... You know, say Caribbean migrants in the post-colonial period. Um, hmm. You wouldn't catch somebody like me describing themselves as British; it would seem presumptuous. So, I don't. Th- I think. In- I think that point is best made as you know, one which applies to many, the many states. In a particular instance, I was using it. I think it was to a degree a polemical edge, right? I mean, uh, well, I, it uh. goes back to this question of, you know, um, what exactly is it that irks us about? China's return to scale right Right. Um, and and very often in American policy discourse I don't need to tell you right now it's as though China was behaving in some astonishingly outrageous way you know and and it all needs to be explained in terms of you know Xi and Xi's rise and this huge and sudden and abrupt rupture that happens in 2012 which means that now we're set on this course and if only China could go back to being and that's the question about what like what would china have to do to calm the hawks in washington and i don't think there's an answer to that other than be utterly supplicant like yeah, there's right, really yeah. no configuration and, you know and and even even you know truly willing players in america's orbit like japan south korea and germany if they ever show any genuine you know sense of autonomy they get labeled as french and then shortly after that it's you know you're being labeled as a rogue state um <laughs> So for, for a regime like China, I just think it's impossible. There isn't, there isn't, what would they have to do to their defence budget? They would have to continuously reduce it as a share of GDP so as to keep the Pentagon happy with a ratio of like six to one or whatever it is would make the Pentagon happy, right? So so that was the, that's the polemical edge is, is you know, I, I think you could also say in defence of the argument that There has been at times a project of making China into a nation state, whatever it was before, and that's obviously a contested question the current regime is quite attached to that construction, though, as you say, it's around the edges. And then I think as a third element, I would just have to admit that no one's ever going to mistake me for a specialist in Chinese civilization. So, <laughs> yeah, it's the thing I understand. When the Chinese are acting like a nation state, it registers on my radar. Like, right, right, right. You and know,
0: whether or not well, you, it may escape you. But, uh, but the more interesting question is what we were just talking about, what you had already drifted into, which was, you know, really the last thing that I wanted to bring up with you, uh, which is, of course, is there a possible scenario, and you've already sort of answered that, in which the Americans can uh, accept a multipolar reality in which China is a peer state. And I mean, I I think that the anxiety just seems to stem from that. I mean, it is sort of a psychological difficulty on the part of the Americans to accept China as a near-peer competitor. There may be, as I've talked about before, a racial element in it. There may be, I mean, it may may not exist, uh, but... uh, I mean, I think we'd have to answer a kind of counterfactual, you know, if uh, Poland were suddenly to become, you know, a a near-peer competitor, would its being white somehow diminish American anxiety over its rise? And I'm inclined to think that, yes, it would diminish it.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to – I don't know the answer to that question. That is, I think, the huge challenge for American politics. It's the project – you know and and creating the basis on which one could at least have that conversation is is i imagine one of the things that unites folks like you and me in wanting to push this conversation and push the conversation in the way in which we do in in the the, the only hope for that presumably is on the basis of mutual comprehension and um the current the current situation is 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 truly alarming because it seems to be shutting the doors to that, and um, to be retreating in some sense, I mean, you know, and, and I do think there is a degree of parallelism here, though I don't want to push it too far, you know, into sort of m- mutual stereotyping of, of, of various types, which is, which is profoundly unproductive. Yeah. Um, but I, to be honest, don't have a clear idea. We don't. I mean, after all, we have certainly, both you and I have lived our entire lives, and indeed at least one or two generations before us, under the sign of American dominance, and it is very difficult to imagine a world which isn't like that. I mean, I don't think the future, I don't think sensible money bets on a future of Chinese dominance, but multipolarity is is already our reality.
0: Right, right. right, and,
1: right. and the question is really how tense it's going to be.
0: It's, it's even more worrisome for me now that nationalism in China itself has changed. I, I read an excellent essay just yesterday um, in The Wire, China, by Alec Ash, who happens to be Timothy Garton Ash's son, who's lived in China since 2008. He wrote this essay talking about how the the old reactive nationalism that used to define China, that was defensive, that was mostly just about sort of China not getting a fair shake. About you know being misrepresented in the media, it's 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 completely changed. It is now a much more. It's not just defiant. It's it's it comes from confidence and not from a a, a place of sort of you know inferiority complex. It, yeah. it is it now says I have something to tell you. Yeah. I have something, and that's what changed. You know, beginning in, in two thousand nine. I mean, I used to write about you know Chinese nationalism being more or less of the, the you know garden variety reactive nationalist sort. I, I I said look, it's it lacks the kind of uh, viciousness of you know a hindutva or a russian nationalism because it doesn't have a religious core around which to cohere okay. for one thing and I, I feel like that's i have i have to re- revisit my thinking on this and in light of alex excellent essay i mean he really talks about a, a new form of nationalism that uh, that's, that's that's taken over he also writes quite a bit about sort of the performative aspects of it but how you know the performance actually becomes the belief um you know, Václav mm-hmm. Havel's essay about, you know, the greengrocer and the sign that says workers mm-hmm. of the world unite. It's, it's a very good essay and I highly recommend it. Speaking of recommendations, we should get on to recommendations. But first let me thank you. Adam, this was just such a pleasure to talk to you. Um, before we, we do, I, I want you to plug Chartbook, um, your excellent substack, uh, that, and and talk about what the conceit of this latest endeavor is. Um, tell them where they can find it.
1: Yeah, so I've I've joined the, the folks on Substack, I've been doing it for a, a, about nine months now. and um, Yeah, it's, it's great. Um, it's a space for me to explore things, actually, to just answer questions that I'm interested in. I've, I've done a couple on Afghanistan. And again, no one's going to mistake me for an Afghanistan specialist, but I, it's just on my mind right now. I can't watch what's happening without having a bunch of questions. Um, but it's also a space for sort of meta-reflection, for thinking about theory I've, I've in my academic life pursued a lot of different avenues simultaneously and that's left me with a huge number of questions about how to tie things together and you know I, I, I'm spoiled I, I publish all over the place but much of that is too personal in a sense just a little bit too amateurish even for my self-confidence to <laughs> want to like you know to to put it to to foist it on a on a proper publication so this has been a really great space and it, it it's 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 a good community to be in I get a lot of great conversations that spiral out of it so yes if folks are interested in this it's chartbook at substack uh, come along um, I'm posting once a week basically and those yeah. who subscribe get like um, you know to kind of links uh, two or three times a week so it's it's really fun
0: It's it is really great stuff I've really been enjoying it all right. Um, before we go on recommendations, I just want to do a quick reminder: that the cynical podcast is powered by SubChina. If you like what we're doing with this show and with the other shows in our network, please remember that the best way to support us is with a subscription to SubChina Access, our daily email newsletter, which is really, really just full of you know all the important news from China from an unimaginably vast array of news sources. So subscribe to us, show your support. We work very, very hard on this. So recommendations, Adam, what you got for us? <laughs>
1: So it's something weighty, um, but it is perhaps the most impressive thing I've read in years. It's Vasily Grossman's uh, double novel about Stalingrad. Mm. I wrote about this on the chart book because I just had to somehow work it out in my mind emotionally. It's this monumental two-volume novel, historical novel, that's explicitly based on Tolstoy's War and Peace about Stalingrad. The build-up to the Stalingrad battle and then the battle itself. It runs to over 2,000 pages, but you know, I mean, I wanted more at the end of it all. The the volume that's well known in the West has been for decades. It's a sort of dissident classic is Life and Fate. Right. But actually to understand Life and Fate, I would strongly recommend everyone to start with the book, which has been translated quite recently simply as Stalingrad, um, which is the precursor. And the two together are about as epic a piece of I think of them as incredibly serious history writing, to be honest, thinking and reflection on what it means to live history. This is not something that he did as a potboiler. He was a, one of the bravest war correspondents of the, of the Red Army. He put his life at risk continuously. He was reprimanded, in fact, for the risk that he took. He was in the city itself at the time of the fighting. So it's it's as a vivid and dramatic account of the war in all its complexity, Grossman was Jewish. Um, his mother was killed um, by in a death pit um, in the Ukraine in 1941. So, it's 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 a shattering account of the violence of the of the mid 20th century on, on, uh, on the Eastern Front.
0: Adam, when you say that it's inspired explicitly by Tolstoy, do you mean that sort of in its historiography? You know, because Tolstoy has those wonderful appendices. in, in is that what you mean?
1: It's it is it's simultaneously a novel, uh, a history, and also a meta reflection on what on what history is, and, and for a hist- for a professional academic historian, humbling in its and its sophistication and plasticity and the multivocal way in which Grossman is able to summon this question, including the question that everyone at the time, you know, in his clique, they were all reading. He spent the only book he read throughout the war was Tolstoy. So Tolstoy inserts itself himself into Grossman's thinking of of the war it's it's dizzying as a as a as a book unforgettable
0: I think that I'm going to put the podcast on pause for a couple of weeks and just spend those reading this. Uh, that's it's just I, I I have not heard a more compelling pitch for a book in in quite some time, and I, I'm I'm kind of ready to to read something like that right now. Um, and my recommendation is it's going to sound so utterly frivolous by comparison, uh, which is just a, a a show that I've been watching on Amazon Prime called The Legend of El Cid, which is a Spanish language series. It's the second season. The first season was really short and and not entirely satisfying, but it's a real improvement on the uh, the old 1961 Charlton Heston movie, uh, which I loved as a kid, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, if you if you can get past the, the title character's mullet, which he sports for much of the first season, I think you're going to love it. It's just all sorts of, you know, it's bloody battles and gratuitous nude scenes and, and of course, lots and lots of, you know, court intrigue and betrayal and, you know, uh, noble moors and, you know, the whole thing you get with the El Cid package. But it's great. I mean, I, I love how... Uh, fight choreography has gotten to the point right now where you're never embarrassed watching these, you know, these these epic medieval battles on on premium cable. So <laughs> check it out, LC, Uh Enjoy that. Uh, a, a, a very sorry follow up to your excellent recommendation, Adam. Adam, thanks once again. It's just been such a hoot. Um, a, a real pleasure. I, I'm looking forward to uh, publishing this one enormously.
1: Great. Look forward to the next time.
0: Okay. Great. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at SubChina News. And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.